0: What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. This is a walk and talk. I've done a few of these and a lot of you have, enough of you have reached out and said that was eccentric. You might be crazy but I listen to it so I'm going to keep doing these things and they're a little bit easier to do than an interview which involves scheduling and editing. And so I can do them rather quickly because I just press record I talk and then I post it to the Internet. Uh, I'm on Riverside in Riverside Park, which is on the west side, the upper west side of New York. It's a beautiful day, it's Saturday afternoon. I can see the Hudson River. I can see yachts. George Washington Bridge, which is, I think, one of the busiest, if not the busiest, bridge in the world. A lot of bikes going by. It's just, it's a, bu- it truly is a beautiful day. And if you were to come to New York, this time of year is actually quite good. Sometimes it can, can stay cold for a little long. Uh, but what I find is with the with Memorial Day weekend and then the, uh, oh my gosh, my brain just froze the other weekend at the end of summer, there's almost like this on and off button where summer's just boom, it's on for, I guess that's, is it three months? And then it's off. Uh, it's every, every year, it's just on and off like that. It's incredible. So we're going to talk today about learning strategy. And I, I posed a question you know, what, what, to, to people on Instagram, uh, at Mark Pollard, like, what? are things that you're curious about as far as learning or even teaching strategy because I I don't really keep a tally of this but I have a feeling that between the Skillshare class that uh that I have uh which is about 45 minutes and then a lot of the training and the talks I've done in various places I think at least I'm gonna say that seven or eight thousand have spent at least 45 minutes with (laughs) with with what I have taught uh, in the past three years that seems like a lot of people and I haven't really reflected on what I've learned about doing that. And so some of that might come out today. Um, and speaking of learning, before I get into that, my son turned 13 yesterday. It's quite surreal. Uh, if you've listened to these, you know how old I am. And if you haven't listened to many of these, and you won't know how old I am. And because you now know that I have a 13-year-old, you might be confused because there are definitely parts of the world that I I look. Apparently, I'm I'm told that I look young, too young to have a, well, to have kids at some point in Manhattan. Apparently, uh, and then 13 will throw some people. Uh, but look, I, I'll tell you, I, we had him when I was 28, uh, and I was reflecting on what I've learned from him since this whole episode is going to be about learning and teaching. He's a really good kid, uh, and I grew up. My family, my parents at least divorced. I was going to say the family divorced, but my parents divorced. I don't know how old I was, six, seven, eight six or seven and it was rocky for a few years before then and my parents were much older when they had me my dad was 44 and I'm the firstborn and I think my mum was 36 and so as your kids grow up every year every year they have a birthday you go back to memories of when they were born the day they were born you think and I don't think this is uncommon you think about yourself at that age you reflect on the fact that you're getting older so every birthday your child has means that you're a year older and you have a year less on this weird, wonderful planet. And I also reflect, and I, I think in general a lot of people would do this, reflect on what my parents were doing at my age and then also at the age of my child. <laughs> Please say that you do this if you have children, or whether or not you have children. Uh, otherwise I'm going to feel even crazier. And anyway, my son's taught me a lot. Like, literally taught me concepts about soccer which he spends 20 to 25 hours a week in in that world uh, New York's been really good for him in that sense he's getting access to opportunities that we did, that didn't even exist in New York three or four years ago and he's playing at a pretty high level he trains his butt off and it's just amazing to watch him do this he takes it really seriously and I appreciate it and the way that he works hard and my daughter does as well with her, her things it encourages me to work hard them. Now we're a bit of a quiet nerdy family as well, we don't have family near, or we don't have any family nearby really or much family nearby and uh, I wouldn't say we've got the, huge, the, the biggest social circle, perhaps if you're listening to this you're part of my social circle, just saying whether or not we've even met. Um, so my little guy, he, he, he's taught me how to eat better, he exposed me to things like avocado and guacamole, I just ate so badly growing up and you know, I did get to eat, but often you know it was like white bread, pasta, cereal, soda, which is not eating. But you know I probably treated it like a meal at, at some time, uh, at sometimes. And one of the things he r- was really taught me was just about this idea that yes, because my parents split when I was young, and I realize now that I spent a lot of time by myself, and I do have a younger sister, but I spent a lot of time by myself, and that could be part personality, partly where I live, the fact that every two weekends I go to my dad's, which was. About an hour away for the most part, sometimes a little bit further. And uh, I was on buses and trains from a really, like from a really young age. You're definitely younger than my kids. Like five, six, seven. I was traveling around Sydney by myself. And uh, one of the things that I've, that I've really learned from my time with my son is that time, whether or not time is real, whether or not time is a social construct, as in humans just made it up what he's taught me is that it, with, with my whole family but uh, it's my son's birthday so I've been thinking about him that if you spend if you keep spending time together time is there to spend together you know, I feel a lot of parents just give in to the fact that their kids are getting older or they just get more absorbed in their lives and sometimes that you know I when your parents divorce for example I mean they're trying to re-establish their lives so they need to do that they're trying to find love interests they're going through all the turmoil of all of that good relationships not good relationships Um, and sometimes they disappear from their children they can disappear from their children and then there's this narrative out there that well teenagers have to be independent they have to separate anyway which is kinda true but so far with both of my kids we keep spending time together, and I think that creates the the reflex, the muscle memory, to then spend more time together. It's not unnatural. It's not unusual. And whether it's just the type of TV, television that we watch or don't watch, or the bubble that we're in, you know, we're not. We don't really have people around. I don't think they get shamed about spending time with their family. And I, I'm actually quite assertive about it when I'm when I'm with them because sometimes I'll. Get a sense that there might be a kid who finds it weird that we might be hanging out together, and I just tell my kids that this is natural. Like we're tribal people from some kind of I don't know desert jungle. We're meant to be together. Anyway, that's one thought. Time might be a social construct, but if you keep spending time together, time is there to spend together. Uh, One other thought that's on my mind because I do get a few people reaching out and asking about jobs and careers and you know what they should do it's very difficult to ever be able to truly answer that but i was reflecting after i received a few emails this week about this and also reflecting about the fact that i've definitely jumped around a bit and there were seven dynamics or seven things that come to mind when i know you like lists Uh, lists are fine don't judge a list there's of seven things that i think are at play with a lot of people who do jump around. One is this idea of looking for shortcuts. And I've talked at length about the informational interview. A lot of people are just told to do these informational interviews and they're really just wanting a job. And it's, it's, just, it's just a weird thing to do. It's, to me, it's kind of false and fake. I don't always enjoy them. And it's a bit of a trigger word for me. But the, So the first thing is that often when we jump around, we're looking for shortcuts there's definitely too much choice there are too many options it's confusing if you don't like one thing you think you can get another thing and that's not just in jobs and careers you know with tinder and things like that it's relationships it's too easy to just move around three nebulous self-awareness it takes time to do what someone like Carl Jung would refer to as individuate become the person you are meant to be it just takes time the world needs to weather you things need to not go so well you need to examine why they didn't go so well while remembering what has gone well and, and why and then magnify yourself through what you've learned about yourself Four unlearning other people's ideas about you is often at play that we're told certain things given certain career paths at, a, at, a, at when we're young and then we have to realize that the world is bigger that there are more options and for that we're lucky but then we can get stuck in the idea that there are more options five no community contribution if you're getting stuck and you're feeling a bit you know narcissistic just caught in your head thinking about yourself think if you can get involved with some kind of community it could be a strategy community it could be whatever you're into it could be your family village city and see what you can contribute to it could you put on an event could you make an ebook could you write an article about it could you volunteer That'll just get you out of your head and it'll give you some action to look forward to. And in that action, you might hear echoes of what matters to you and who you are. Six, impulsivity, impulsiveness. Just got to move, not happy, got to move. And if you're a little bit neurotic, and I mean that in the well, what I understand from the psychology world, I mean, in the scientific way, that you 'd been unstable, your browns bou- brain is bouncing around all the time, which a lot of people who do creative work, that's what they're, they're living with. You're going to deal with impulses. And then seven, I would say, no creative practice. So looking for shortcuts, too much choice, nebulous self-awareness, unlearning other people's ideas about you, no community contribution, impulsivity, no creative practice. I think... If all those things are at play, there could be more, then you're going to tie yourself up into this weird knot and it's going to hurt for a very long time. And the way out of that knot is through addressing at least some of those points because most of those points will increase your self-awareness over time, your attention to what matters, your attention to people around you and encourage you to take action. And through action, you become... So you can ponder on those things. I don't mean to be too esoteric. These things are actually really important to me, and I know just rattling them off like that might make them seem shallow and superficial. But like I said, if you're stuck, you're bouncing around. Don't just pause for a little bit. Don't keep bouncing around if you can afford a sabbatical, or I don't, then do that. but don't like find yourself in riding and doing. All right. So I want to talk about learning in general and and uh, strategy practice and you you will hear me repeat a few themes from earlier podcasts but these things these things and these themes are important. So the first one is the idea of deliberate practice. You can Google that phrase and read research on it. It's a phrase that I came across through reading about behavioral economics. And it look what what they what they were trying to look at is how do people get good at stuff? And sometimes there are innate skills and just things that do come through the genes that makes people better at certain things than other people Uh, and then you also have to work hard so deliberate practice is taking what you do and breaking it into small bits practicing the most difficult bits and then getting feedback as you practice the story that I've used before is uh, about violinists or people in the orchestra so they looked at violinists who were essentially practicing for eight hours a day and they were like well, how is, how, why are some of these people getting better than the others and what they found is that the violinists who were getting better than the others were practicing the more difficult parts of their trade more often so if you're thinking about strategy work break it down in what I would call a secular way what is strategy work? well it's finding out stuff it's talking to people it's listening to people it's watching people it's reading things it's writing and expressing it's getting A story together or a presentation together it's so on and so forth right so break it down in these plain English ways and then think about ways that you could practice it you can post rationalize television commercials on YouTube what's the insight in that television commercial could you do that ten times a week 50 times a week yes stand-up comedy TED talks fiction open up your favorite fiction your favorite novel Hopefully you're reading, open up your favorite novel, read a page, highlight three of your favorite sentences, rewrite them and what they mean to you in a different way and maybe in a way that you would put in a brief. Okay, You can break down all the things that you do into small pieces. So that's deliberate practice. It's uh, It's a concept that's worth considering. Connected to that is the idea of sets. I've been hearing the idea of sets a lot in discussion about soccer or football in America. And a lot of commentators are talking about how the US team, for example, they're trying to get the players to come together. They didn't didn't go to the last World Cup. They have a new coach. There's a new system, a new philosophy. And they're just trying to get enough of the players together before these games to do sets. Sets as in uh, lifting weights at a gym. So... If you're doing if you're doing bench press, you might do three sets and you might do five to ten repetitions. So, each, for those who are really not familiar with these concepts, I'm going to break it down in very simple terms. A repetition is literally where you you push the bar up and then down, and it comes back down. That's one. <laughs> okay. Or if you're doing a push up, you do one push up. That's one. But if you do, a, you might do a set of ten push ups. So I'm hearing this word a lot. The other where other place that you hear it sometimes in two different ways is stand up comedy. So stand up com- comedians put on sets five-minute set, seven-minute set, hour set, but then what's interesting is that they talk about working out and using often small stand-up clubs to work out, and they'll want to work out four or five times a week and do a set, and they're using it in the, in both ways, I feel, the exercise way and then the stand-up comedy way, so that's important. I think the other, th- the third point about all of this stuff is the ability for practice to be your sanity. If you are thinking about winning in the short term, it's going to tie you up in knots. Thinking about practice means you are more focused on process goals than outcome goals. A process goal is writing a page of a book every single day or 1,000 words or 50 words. Yeah, it's the thing that makes the outcome happen that's what you're looking at and you're establishing numbered measurable goals around those things an output goal would be to write a book or to write a successful book that's an out outcome outcome goal not output goal but practice keeps you sane so that if you're if you are working crazy hours or you're not in a happy environment or you're not happy with yourself you don't think you're doing fulfilling work if a little more often than normal, you can think, you know what, I'm practicing how to deal with bad situations. That's not for you to then accept all abuse, okay? That's where these ideas, if you're just either or with some of these thoughts, then it's it's kind of dangerous. If you're pitching, what do I want to practice? What do I want to get good at? A new project comes in, well, what do I want to get good at? You know what, I haven't presented to a senior, uh, to a CMO or to a, a senior client team before. I'd love to do that, I'd love to practice that. That's one way to stay sane with all this sort of stuff. So I'm going to go through the questions from Instagram now. Thank you, as always, for sending these questions. I haven't written everyone's name down correctly, but I will shout you out, and I'll do my best to pronounce your Instagram handle. I'll do my best as possible. Uh, The first one is a conversation I was having with uh, Mamta Sabral from Mumbai, and we were talking about presenting and how to become confident as a presenter. So I do think one of the main things that you have to start with is trying, this is not for everyone, but trying to become confident as a writer. Right, 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 right. You know, all the little things that I put out on the internet, I, s- I see what gets traction, what doesn't get traction, and I'm, I'm practicing what I might say in public. And then I keep the things that I think are effective and the things that matter to me. Uh, and that's exactly what stand up comedians do with jokes they, they record the audience, they listen to the feedback, they improve the jokes, and then after a year, they've got a 30 minute set or whatever they're striving for. And they let the things that aren't working go so writing i think is it needs to be part of any strategist's practice and and then there's a few useful thoughts that that i play with in my mind when i when it comes to actually presenting first is the the content of the presentation so getting my head around things like the three act story structure storytelling structure the idea that i want to take a risk when i do presentations uh, i just i'll do outlines it could be i'll give myself a page i'll usually use a sharpie and i'll just put a lot of boxes on the page and write what story i want to tell with that sharpie in the box so that one box might have once there was a girl called goldilocks next box she went to the forest next box you know, and I'm just being very, using very small words, being very simple so that I know that each slide, if I'm using slides, I know what each slide is going to do and that's having possibly already done an outline or collected points, uh, potentially in in my in, on my phone in notes uh, and getting to some provocative, well, <laughs> hopefully some cheeky provocative theme. Right, so that gets the content. Then when I'm in front of the audience, I, I, my voice, you know, I grew up with a sense of kind of confidence sensitivity and and low self-worth I I realize this in myself now that I there were definitely times growing up where i possibly because of what was going on in the family where I felt like I was a burden to to my family and I internalized that for a very very long time and I disappeared into pretty dark (laughs) sad and angry poetry at a very young age Uh, and then also rap books and also then listened to angry an angry music and just held on to this pain of just feeling there are definitely moments where I thought maybe my parents shouldn't have had kids and they're, they're good people but uh, just based on what was going on and in, in, the li- in our lives I probably shouldn't I don't mean that in like a, an absolute truth kind of way I just know that that thought was echoing through me for a while uh, I just feel very fortunate that I'm, I'm still here and able to try to channel or well, reflect that back to you ...in a way that might or might not be historically accurate or correct at all. It could just be my perception. I might have made it up. Uh, but there's definitely trauma in the family that uh, I internalize for a very, very long time. And so, when I'm doing my talks, it's f- just this need to express and put stuff out in public. When, uh, you know, you put me in a room of ten people if I'm not presenting... Um, my brain gets a little bit active and I shut down a little I don't like compete, having to compete I love my little one-on-one chats, which is why I do the interviews I love i do love being on a stage and being on, on a stage in front of 500 people or a thousand people I love it. Uh, I have a sense of distance from it and some of the thoughts that go through my mind are that First of all someone's gonna judge me. They're gonna judge me within a few seconds But also they're just making it up. So therefore what what actually matters second is the thought that most people are in their heads and whatever you say most of the time all they're doing is okay how does that relate to me how does that relate to my experience how does that relate to what i want so whether or not they like you becomes irrelevant and then there's a certain liberty in thinking about people being in their heads and i I do find that way more useful than the old cliche of just when you're presenting imagine everyone naked i would find that horribly distracting but what I do think is that everyone's in their heads and if they're there, and they were, most people, most people are there in a room when you're presenting with some kind of non-judgmental, compassionate spirit. They might not look like that, but most people are there to learn and they want you to succeed. There's, there will be people who don't want you to succeed. And guess what? Don't need them in your life. Just, so find out how to guide your energy to the people who are there for genuine reasons. And then your job is really to get, to get them to walk around their heads And you might want to put on a show, you might want to be part of that spectacle, but you're doing it so that they walk around their heads. If you're using slides, sometimes that can be overwhelming. Like the fact that you've got to get through 50 slides, for example. Uh, Lower the stakes. So that's why it's really useful to think, well, first of all, to have fewer than 50 slides, but if you have 50 slides, what's the one most important thing I need to communicate through this slide so that you're not then or like fearing that you're going to forget bullet point six because you've decided to be brave and use an image rather than six or seven bullet points to describe something. So what's the one thing I need to do on this slide and then move on? You are the presentation, but also you're getting people to walk through their heads. You're, you're kind of like a, a tour guide <laughs> of people's heads. Uh, and then practice you know we talked talked about sets before stand up comedians get out there, do things that are going to scare you, expose yourself to the things that you 're worried about that 's how you develop from what I understand this is what psychologists say as well this is how you develop resi- uh, resilience and i 'm not saying that i I feel like i 'm relatively resilient, but I can also I can get into a dark place really quickly, especially in winter uh, so I'm sort of sharing what I aspire to rather than what I think I am and, and uh, when I'm talking I'm like oh, I bet everyone in the room knows this everyone in the room knows this I know it, I know it what am I doing here? who am I to be up here? these thoughts go through my head pretty much <laughs> if I'm doing like an 8 hour session they're there for seven and a half hours and then I, th- I have to go back to the fact that I think most, I have to think that most people in the room for genuine, compassionate reasons Compassion for themselves as well. They're there to learn. They're taking time out from their lives and that might mean they have to work later that night. But they're there to learn as an act of compassion for themselves, to do better. It's an act of hope. So I try to reconnect with that energy. And then I try to entertain myself. You know, I feel like if I can try to entertain myself, then I'll probably and I've got to, look, listen to my voice. It's monotone. I mumble a bit. I have an Australian accent. That, those things probably won't change very much. Just got to work out how, how to magnify it, and, and then practice. I've been thinking about this. So what? I kind of maybe in New York later this year, I'll uh, get a room and just try to work out how to get people together for a day to, to practice how to write presentations and then do presentations. We could do that as some kind of community event, perhaps. I'll, I'll think about that. If you've got ideas, let me know. All right. Uh, Zach Ernest. as an account person, how can we be the most effective partner to a strategist? So this question is not exactly about learning or teaching strategy, but I'll, I will go through all the questions because people spent the time to sub- to submit them, submit, share them. As an account person, how can we be the most effective partner to a strategist? Well, it's to the strategist. So ask the strategist with whom you're working. Know that they are look there are different kinds of strategy folk there are really I hear this from people they're really difficult, tricky stubborn, arrogant, aloof overly intellectual strategy folk they're going to need something different from you uh, and then you're going to have quieter maybe more sensitive probably both kinds are insecure as well but quieter more, more sensitive, trying to find their voice at work and in life, strategy folk as well and then everything in between and whatever the opposite of in-between is. So I think it does help to communicate that you value the craft, that you value strategy, that you value the people there. Ask the question, what do you need from me? And if you're a strategist, ask that of the account team as well. What do you need from me? It's a beautiful, simple question. What do you think we need to do now to be successful? How can I help you today? Just ask these really simple, beautiful, honest, vulnerable questions. Don't work at each other. Work with each other, through each other. I think also trying to read some of the articles and books that your strategy folk are reading. Be involved with the research. Just show an interest. And it's, it's a supportive, compassionate interest. And there will be times where they will appreciate your leadership and dominance Uh, an ability to dominate a situation they will appreciate that and it's just finding that balance between compassionate caring supportive and you know what guys we've got a job to do let's get it done let's go but try not to demean them try not to demean the craft try not to play games with whether they're on the scopes or not try not to organize meetings without them being there or stra- like fake strategy meetings where everyone's just getting to get together to talk about strategy because people want some time out of the office that kind of stuff is just don't waste people's time uh, Karen Stoughton finding confidence or a voice in uh, in teaching or mentoring so how do you find confidence how do you find a voice in teaching or mentoring well I think a good way to do that is by writing start there that's where you find your voice right? or recording yourself as you're talking and then analyzing it there's a helicopter going above I, I don't know if that's too noisy the sound se- I have listened back to uh, the walk, walk and talks that I've done and the sound seems to be okay even if in my mind it's very noisy out and about and you can also play you can role play there are definitely some silly characters that I play on the uh, on the internet <laughs> at times, so i 've calmed it down a little lately, but there are some weird characters that i 've played you know I went through this whole seri- uh, I should keep doing this, but I went through this phase of just drawing sh- shapes with a sharpie on any material that I could find. you know if my kids were at a soccer game, i'd just pick up a piece of thrown away cardboard, draw something silly on it. one time I did it, and it kind of looked like a koala, so I took a photo of myself as completely. You know, I was barely in the photo, but I did it to be cheeky, and I just called it an art koala. A couple of years, I think it was a couple of years ago, I just took on this weird primal scream jester character laughing at people on Twitter. I'm not saying any of it's good, it was just play. And through that, settled on, you know, through doing all this stuff, you sort of settle on your own voice. And I think also the one way to get to that voice is just trying to give yourself a sense of urgency. Like, why does my voice even need to be out there? Am I feeling stifled? Am I bouncing from one job to the other? Am I being successful? But am I... Sorry, and and if I'm not being successful, am I just hiding from who I am and what what I think I need? That was a bit esoteric. But writing and practicing, role-playing, record yourself, and focus on those process goals can I do, if, if it's about teaching for example, can I teach once a quarter if you've got a full time job and you're doing long hours can I just teach once, once a quarter if you do that over five years, that's solid that's solid can I do it every month next question uh, Taylor how can a tactical person learn to be a strategist and does it even matter if we do So, yeah, let's talk about what those words mean. I think when we talk about being a tactical person, we mean we are detail-oriented, and then we're referring to a strategist as someone who might see the bigger picture. So, detail versus bigger picture. And I do think a tactical person or someone who is interested in detail can learn to be a broader thinker, a more expansive thinker. Whether it matters that you do that, which is the second part of your question, that's on you. That's up to you. I enjoy it. And part of that journey is focusing on the details. If you're detail-oriented, list the details. And then getting to a bigger picture is analyzing what those details mean. What are the patterns in those details? That's all it is. You find your own taxonomies, or, which is a fancy word for ways to group things. Next one, Sayed Habidi, aside from podcasts and books, what are accessible ways to practice or to learn strategy? So like I said, break it down in a secular way. Think about the five things you, you do most often, maybe three, and the things that you want to get good at, hopefully there's an overlap, and then just think about them in plain English. Asking strangers questions. How do I get good at that? Well, you could watch videos of people asking strangers questions and analyze how they're doing it. Write down the types of questions there are many authors from what I've heard in history who've hand-written their favorite books because they wanted to feel what it would like to have written those words I think I think this is correct that Hunter S. Thompson wrote James Joyce's Ulysses, is that correct? because he wanted to feel what it would be like to write those words it's a form of practice and internalizing if you want to get good at writing single minor propositions in the next month, look at 100 good television commercials or print ads or out of home and write them, write the propositions for them. Maybe even write f- five, five versions of the proposition for 100 ads. Practice, practice, practice. That's, that's how, you do, how you do it, right? Kelsey Steele, it can be so subjective. What to do when other planners redo your work? That's difficult it's It's not cool when other people redo your work. maybe times run out, maybe they're frustrated, maybe you've been difficult maybe they've lost lost confidence in you, but also don't have confidence in being able to lead and teach and mentor you in the time that's available. perhaps they're just dismissive people so you need to diagnose what you think the problem is because it would be different in in each situation. Maybe you need to learn how to be disagreeable and to say, no. <laughs> no is the word of disagreeableness. Uh, no, I've got this. Let me, let me have another go. Give me an hour. Give me a day. Whatever, you, whatever it is. I've got this. Or catch up with them and say, hey, can we just go for a walk? Do a walk and talk of your own. I uh, just wanted to find out. You redid my strategy the other day. Uh, can you just help me understand like why, what, what was I missing, how do I get better and do it in a confident way maybe with a similar tone of voice to what I did and by the way, I've never asked someone this so I, it's very easy for me to say, here's what you could do I don't use the word should here's what you could do but, if that, but don't do it in a whiny way uh, or a passive aggressive way do it to learn, detach yourself from that situation if a person's going to attack you as a person versus discuss your behavior, then I don't have time for that so that's just how they are then you get, a, get a, a new decision to make which is whether you move on from that interaction that project that team, that company so you, so to be able to answer any question around you know what do you do when other planners redo your work it comes down to the very situation in which it happens if there's a common and if there's a common pattern and then trying to diagnose why and you do that through intuition and through talking to people uh, and potentially learning how to be disagreeable, maybe having a stronger voice in meetings, talking first, talking up, so that in general people see you in a, in a more assertive way. Well, they see, see you as a more assertive person. Uh, Lynn to Marcos, is digital strategy different from marketing strategy? Well, it can be. It depends how you're using it because digital It could be at that, at that business level you could have ideas that happen to happen off uh, it's so murky I don't even think it's a useful thing to think about I wrote this article years ago why the world doesn't need another digital strategist Uh, so in uh, conventional sense digital strategy is probably a subset of marketing strategy if we're thinking about communications because you have business strategy then the marketing strategy is the thing that gets it out and digital strategy is a subset of communications strategy or planning if you're using digital strategy to in a broader way to mean everything from user experience to to social media to uh, data and analytics to business and product transformation then you're using it in a different way and some of those things are really part of business strategy so it's very hard to give a clean answer to that question without pulling apart what these words are Uh, dog yawn where do i start Mid-career copywriter, small market. Never heard of account planning until now. Well, welcome to account planning. Uh, and maybe your, <laughs> your maybe your Instagram handle isn't want It some weird self-correct uh, autocorrect thing happened as I pasted this stuff around my phone. So where do I start? Mid-career copywriter. Look, you know I love writing and I love words, and I think it is a good place from which to launch. And then well to launch a strategy career but also to develop one journalists are always observing things writers any kind of writer is usually observing the world and trying to find things that other people haven't and then working out how to express those things in ways that haven't been expressed before uh, it does depend on what kind of copywriting you do if you're coming up with very brandy quote unquote brandy language then I would encourage you to simplify your language maybe do a little bit of journalistic writing or non-fiction essay writing just to you know, like remove some of the sugar <laughs> from the language and then I, it's just a matter of learning if you, like extra skills like how are you going to research, how are you going to find out stuff if you've been a copywriter that other people have briefed you now need to learn how to get out of the office yes, partly through the computer but then also talking to people, going to stores talking to people who sell people stuff meeting experts and then using that to inform what you write and how you write. So, you know, then where do you start? I mean, you need to be able to work somewhere that wants it. If you're somewhere that has it, then perhaps you can see if you can shadow someone for a period of time, if you can volunteer for projects, maybe spend late nights and weekends doing extra work. And then read, find case studies, post-rationalize them and rewrite them in your own language, case studies are very useful. Look at good work out there, see what you think the strategy is, find your own ways and rubrics and frameworks. You can, you can use the diagrams that a lot of us put out on the internet. You know, I have this one problem inside advantage strategy. Can you apply that to 50 campaigns? What are you going to learn from that? Ladies, is the man. How the f do I let my team plan before the scope is completed? This is a really frustrating question for a lot of people. The way to do it is for, that, for planning to be a default on every scope. Why should planners and strategy folk have to find the projects, chase people around the building, try to get on the scope, explain again for the 20th time what planning is, as opposed to just put it on the scope and if you don't want it, come talk to me. Make it their problem, and I don't mean make it their problem in an adversarial way but there are often competitive and adversarial dynamics going on with this kind of stuff. So that then you know, you might need to talk to whoever's doing the scopes, that department, the head, get them on board. <coughs> but it can, be, it can be quite frustrating. And if the executive team's not supporting it, then maybe they don't want it to succeed. If it's like passive-aggressive, as in, well, you tell us how it's got to work and no one actually supports it, no one wants to make any of it default, then I don't really have a very good answer. You know, Gondo, if you have no formal training or education in strategy, how can you equip yourself to be a strategist? Well, what is a strategist? To me, a strategist is someone who... So strategy is an informed opinion about how to win. The way... What a strategist does, they try to find out stuff about people the business the culture competition and they try to use what they find out in ways that can create competitive advantage for their clients or their company if you're doing planning or strategy in an advertising role then the competitive advantage that you're usually trying to create is through yeah. reputation and perception sure. I- idealistically you- what we find through what the work that we do in the advertising agencies m- might change how a business operates, but I don't think that's as common as some of us hoped about 10 years ago. I think in many ways, advertising has become more advertising. You know, A lot of agencies launch startup labs, and we're trying to sell design thinking and innovation, all these things, and a lot of those skills just went in-house. Uh, so if you have no formal training, how can you equip yourself to be a strategist? I think I've and also I think I've answered there are other answers that I've already mentioned that, that get to this question Okay, so I'm not going to dwell on that I think it's a matter of breaking down the craft into small bits and practicing it reading case studies, looking at the work that's out there analyzing it I'm talking to other strategists having go-to techniques having your own creative practice express yourself in the world as yourself Carolyn Runk, how does a strategist do research how do you know if your sample size is enough why are there so many different job titles and what do they mean how does a strategist do research, well a strategist does research in any way that they can do research my go to techniques for a long time were everything from keyword research, so looking at you guys all know what that is, google keywords it used to be more interesting like in the late 1990s, early 2000s that stuff was really interesting, website analytics which part of the website are people going to, why are they going to that interviewing people, interviewing your customers, potential customers, lost customers or clients, lapsed customers or clients, identifying what the competitors are doing, looking at in uh, financial analyst reports, using various knowledge bases to see what research has been done. I'm not going to name them right now. Many agencies I've worked in didn't have access to them, by the way you know what they are. Uh, I think the most important thing for a strategist to do is before the research to work out what they they think they need to work out. There's a lot of mindless just gathering of stuff into decks that happens without actually thinking about why. And maybe the shortcut for some of the the research that you want to do is you know if you're doing research into alcohol it'd be very easy to talk to bartenders about what they see, how people order or people who work in liquor stores. How do you know if your sample size is enough? I mean, in academia, I was talking to a, uh, a f- talking to a professor about this. They have certain numbers, and a lot of them are just rules of thumb. I don't want to give a number because I'll get it wrong. I'm not an academic. Why are there so many different job titles, and what do they mean? Well, they mean that there's more reason to pay people to do work, <laughs> or to pay them more to do work. Uh, and also, a lot of people, like, this, this job title sprawl is usually about individualism and trying to sound important, probably trying to sound more important than trying to sound specific and in a way that justifies people spending money that's all it comes down to right david joseph Uh, what are good masters programs in design branding or business for strategists uh I, i would need to look into this in a in a better way i'm not too sure i've i've been in and taught some stuff and in, in, in different places and I, th- I think it depends on the, on the teachers uh, and also the group of people that you're with I yeah I don't I don't want to give a specific answer to that one I do think in general a lot of a lot of them over promise or allow you to over believe in them increasingly there's pressure on on all schools, all colleges, and and all of these programs to connect you to the industry, and I think a lot of them are doing a better job at that to get your network going. Uh, Some of them are also a little dated. So I don't have a good answer. If anyone's got a good answer, let me know. Uh, Murray Claire, if you've learned by figuring shit out, how do you know when you've learned enough to progress? Well, why would you wanna feel that you've learned enough I get, I get mini panic attacks about how much there is to learn in the world. Now, learning enough to progress, depends what you mean. Is that more responsibility, better job title, better job, more money? And I'd suggest that that is, think through that stand-up comedian example, the stand-up comedy example, that learning enough and f- figuring things out is them listening to feedback, listening to the audience response. So how can you use that idea in your work? What kind of response are you getting in the rooms that you're in to your projects? Are your strategies leading to work? Is that work then effective? If you're connecting, if you're identifying a problem in a provocative, interesting, plain English kind of way, and you've got some kind of insight that connects to a single minor proposition that relates to what that product and brand are all about and the, problems that the, and the, and the issues that they're facing, if you can do those three things there, and that connects to the work, and then the work's effective, then you're learning, and that's an amazing place to be, and if you have that in a day job, you, you appreciate that day job, because it's very difficult in some parts of the world for any of that to be true. So you you get to work out when you've learned enough to progress, but you can listen to other people's feedback. I'm not a, I don't mean feedback is in the HR feedback, I don't think that's a very genuine, interesting compassionate process honestly it's just about managing people's perception of themselves hoping that they always feel inadequate because that gives people uh, that gives other people power I really do think that it sounds a bit conspiratorial but that's what I think, philosophically not scientifically Uh, Lily Gaya, what is the worst mistake a strategist could commit, turning themselves off, not having a creative practice for themselves, I know you mean that in a different way, but that's that's what I believe because to me that is self-love paying attention to who you are what you're about your voice trying to find it work it out acting because of that because you matter and doing that as in a relatively frequent way as part of your creative practice I could say that what I'm doing right now is part of my creative practice it's stream of consciousness talking as opposed to stream of consciousness writing which I have found super useful and in a way that I, I feel love for the full stream of consciousness writing and I'm, I'm so happy that I discovered it a little later on I mean I, I've journaled and written a lot of poetry but it, yeah I feel like I've understood it a little bit better now. As I understand it in a more mature way now Something things take time Brian Kelly and also congrats Brian Brian is coming to this strategy supersize Omega class on a scholarship wrote a beautiful thing. Uh, the scholarship was for people who identified as feeling underrepresented in in advertising. We didn't judge the self identification, the self diagnosis. Uh, we had about 72, 73 entries. We read them blind, didn't look at companies, didn't look at company names or people's names, we just wanted to respond to the text, to the words themselves. Uh, There's me, Julian Cole, and Tara entire, entire Dutta. And then we compared notes, got to a short list, and, and Brian was one of the people. So looking forward to meeting you, Brian. Uh, the question is, do you think in-depth interviews, IDIs, in-depth interviews with stakeholders are enough to develop strategy? Well, first principle is work with what you have. Work with what you've got access to, time-wise, resource-wise. S- second principle is... Try to make sure that that's not just internal thinking, that you're talking to people outside the company. But if you're talking to stakeholders, I mean, some of them might have had a lot of interactions with people over the years. They might be running their own research. So if you have a sense that they're connected to the outside world, totally, totally valid. You can get really interesting places. The other thing is if you're working with a very senior person who's trying to help, Trying to build a company as an act of self-expression, it's a completely reasonable place to start. You do need to be mindful of competitive context, what the competitors are doing, and trying to get a sense of of what the market is or might be interested in. We are guessing. You know, strategy is an informed opinion about how to win. You need information, then you have an opinion. So there's guessing happening. Uh, But you can absolutely get interesting ideas from stakeholders. One of the questions that I love, and I know some of you would have heard this before, is what's something that your customers don't know that you know that would change their lives? What's something that your customers don't know that you know that would change their lives? I I jokingly call that the mad vatter as opposed to the mad hatter because it's poor English. (laughs) Uh, And uh, there's a gentleman who does taxes for freelancers, for the creative industries, uh, and his answer to that was that what, what creative freelancers don't realize is that when they don't take, take care of their taxes, that it can cost them their creative freedom. Taxes, creative freedom. When creative freelancers don't take care of their taxes, it can cost them their creative freedom. That's a lateral thought, taxes and creative freedom. We don't usually put those things together, but the way that this gentleman put these things together made a lot of sense. It's an insight, so an insight's a cousin of an idea. It's one sentence, and within a few words, you could turn that into an entire company strategy. You could do your TEDx or your TED Talk about it. You could do your communication strategy with it. And that's from a brief conversation with a stakeholder. All right? So they're they're the questions. Appreciate everyone asking them and sharing them with me. And uh, I know I jumped around a little bit, but I'm always going to do that when I'm doing Stream of Consciousness Talking. Again, if you like these little walks, walk and talks, walks and talks, walk and talks, let me know. Mark.Pollard at MightyJungle.co. Otherwise, I'll see you on Instagram. And if you ever want to leave a nice review or rating on the iTunes situation, please do. Love to you all. Peace.